The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. It really feels like we just finished up with the class of 2015, although those of you who are listening are probably thinking, no, it doesn't, because... Maybe you don't have a class of 2015 in your house, but for me, it feels like we just finished up with that class, so it's kind of hard to believe, but the common application is going to go live for the class of 2016 in just two short days, Um, but whether or not I'm ready, it's going to be here on August 1st. So with that in mind, we're actually devoting significant portions of this week's show and next week's show to the latest version of the Common App. We're going to have tips on understanding and completing the application, uh, which is accepted at more than 500 colleges and universities. So for many students applying to college this coming year, they will at some point be filling out the Common App. It's one of the most popular applications. So we're going to really dig deeply into that. For those of you for whom the Common App is actually in the rearview mirror, we're also going to look more closely at income-driven loan repayment plans this week. But first, I'm really excited to introduce my friend and colleague, Elise Krantz, who is a Dartmouth grad, a former Barnard and Bennington admissions officer, a current college coach educator, and most importantly for this week and next week, one of, in my opinion, the most foremost experts in the Common App. Hi, Elise. Hi, Beth. All right. People may be wondering, well, that's a pretty strong uh, introduction, the foremost uh, experts in the Common App. But the the truth of it is that we have about 30 educators here at College Coach who all have either admissions or financial aid backgrounds, meaning that we've all worked in admissions offices or financial aid offices. And we all turn to you for our Common App insight. And then you write these fabulous books series of blogs every year about the Common App, which are always viewed by thousands and thousands of people. Uh, so I feel pretty comfortable calling you a Common App expert. And do, do you feel comfortable accepting that title? Oh, it's a great title. I'd, I'd <laughs> love to hold that, that honor. I, I do a lot of research in the Common App. It's probably part joy, part work, but it's something I, I really do love. So let's get into it. There you go. All right. Um, well, So the Common App is going to go live in two days, which means that we haven't yet gotten an actual look. You haven't been able to actually get into the application and poke around in it. Um, But what can you tell us in terms of um, if you're a student and you're preparing to, uh, you know, sort of open up the Common App and get started on it when it goes live, what are the first steps that you would recommend students take today, two days before it's live? Okay, so 
So there are a lot of pieces to the common application. I would say from start to finish, it literally only takes about an hour to fill out the actual form, not including the essays, but Mm -hmm. just the biographical information and high school information, things like that. But before you can fill in any of that, there are some technical minor pieces that students do want to be thinking about um, as being their very first steps when they get to that website. So the website address is commonapp.org. And for those who took a look at it last year, it's going to look a little bit different this year, not so much the platform and the way the application looks, but just the website itself. They're just doctoring it up a little bit. It's going to be a little more colorful, um, a few more pictures. And the first step that students are going to have to take is to create a username and a password. And for any student whose high school uses Naviance and the eDocs to submit recommendations, which a lot of high schools do, students are going to want to use their exact same email address that they're currently using on Naviance for the common application. So your username is your email address and then you're going to choose a password as well. Great. So that's a good tip. I didn't know that about using the same email address that you're using on Naviance. I'm going to be emailing all of my students as soon as we hang up this call. Uh, So why is that actually, that you want to use the same email address? Okay. So for schools that use the eDocs, that's their electronic documents, to submit teacher letters of recommendation and the high school form and the profile and all of that, in order for the high school to send forms on your behalf, you, the student has to link their Common App account to their Naviance Family Connection account. Gotcha. And the way to do that is to have the same email address. And um, that's in- very important because a lot of times students will say they've contacted a teacher, but the teacher can't find that student's information. It's often because the student either didn't put in the correct high school name, which is step number two of steps to take when you log into the Common <laughs> App is to input your proper high school name and the SEEB code to look it up so that you know you have the exact school and the exact city and state that you're in. Um, mm-hmm. And so it could be that reason, but also because the student perhaps did not use the same username, that same email address for both accounts. Right. So if you have an email address, a Gmail address, a Comcast address, and an address that your high school uses, uh, you want to narrow down to one that you're going to use. And I would advise that you want to use that same email address for anything you do related to college. That way, there's no chance that you're getting emailed on a Gmail account and getting from one college and getting messages from a different college on a a different account. Uh, You want to keep it all in one place. But that's a particularly compelling reason why you want to use the same email address. Okay, so that's step number, those are step numbers one and two. What's step number three? Uh, one of the, in order for teachers to submit letters of recommendation on a student's behalf, and this goes for both students whose high schools that use Naviance as well as high schools that are still submitting the traditional paper letters of recommendation. Either way, a student needs to check a box saying that they waive their right to seeing and accessing those letters of recommendation later on. Actually, I should back up a bit. You don't technically have to say, I waive my right, but you have to either waive your right or not waive your right to Mm -hmm. access those letters. Now, we do advise, as do high schools advise, students to check that little box. It's called the FERPA waiver. It stands, I think it's the federal education. I don't have it in front of me, of course. Um, (laughs) But it's, it's a waiver that says, 
that you can either look at those letters in the future or not. And we do advise that students waive their rights so that teachers and guidance counselors feel comfortable sharing their, their, um, their genuine feelings about that student so that colleges really do get a comfortable sense that the teacher is, is being accurate when describing how that student performs academically. You know, I would add to that when I was reading files at Penn, we certainly noticed if a student hadn't waived his or her right to see that recommendation. And if they hadn't waived their right, it did put a question in our minds as to how factual and honest, well, maybe not factual, but certainly how honest that teacher or guidance counselor was being uh, since they knew that the student had not waived his or her right. And I will also say that uh, in all of my years reading files at Penn, I saw inc- very infrequently did I ever see a negative letter of recommendation. I could probably count on one hand the number of negative recommendation letters that I read. So you're waiving your right, not because then the teacher is going to go and tell a lot of tales out of school about you, but really so that they feel comfortable being honest and the college, more importantly, feels comfortable that the teacher was honest. Um, and then the only other thing I want to add on that is if you don't waive your right, the only time you get to see those recommendation letters is if you, once you choose the school you're going to enroll at and then enroll at that school and then are attending that school, only then can you request to see your letters of recommendation. It's not like you can go to a school that denied you and see your file there. You only have access to the file at the school that you're attending. So in essence, what does it matter at that point? You're already in and you already know that the recommendation letter at the very least didn't hurt you and possibly helped you. So more reasons why we do encourage you to waive your right. All right. It's enough on waiving rights. Uh, let's talk about, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about in terms of first steps for students on Saturday when the Common App goes live, since I know that every single student is going to rush to that website when it's 90 degrees and sunny out and start filling out the Common App. But anything else? I guess the last piece, again, goes back to those students whose schools use Naviance, is that um, you do want to, and or this goes for either, I suppose, to add mm-hmm schools to your list of colleges. So when you look at the Common App online, you'll see these different tabs, and one of them will say My Colleges, and from there you can add schools to your list. And this is very changeable. You can add, you can delete later. It's not set in stone what you add at this point, but whatever the final list that you eventually add to your My Colleges list, that will be viewed and accessible to your high school. So when you do ask those teachers for that letter of recommendation or you ask your guidance counselor to submit your transcript, the schools that you've listed on your Common App will automatically transfer over to Naviance. And so that's an important step to take that students can start playing around with once they log on. Yes. Okay. That sounds great. So let's talk about, because we haven't actually been able to dig into the new Common App yet, because as noted, it's not going live until for another two days. Let's talk about some of the general changes that were made to the application this year that we already know about. Last week, we actually welcomed a representative of the Common App, and he talked to us about uh, just some of the general changes that they made this year. We didn't have time to really dig into all of them, and um, so now would be a great time to talk through some of the things that have already been announced. Sure. 
So it was a couple of months ago, or maybe it was just last month, uh, in June, the Common App put on this webinar for guidance counselors and teachers and, I suppose, interested parents uh, to see what is coming up. And so that's, this is where I'm getting my information from, and I'm sure some of it was maybe mentioned by your, your guest last week. Um, but the ones that really stood out for me is in terms of the big changes for this year that students should make a note of is uh, the first one is about the essays, and that this year students will be able to make an unlimited number of edits to their main personal statement. Mm -hmm. And for those who are experienced with the, the Common App, the way it was last year and in previous years, students could have up to three total versions of the Common App. And then once they made that final set of edits, it locked, essentially, and you were, you were stuck with your final essay. And so you really couldn't um, tweak, make adjustments, or personalize these essays in any way because it was essentially one essay going out to all of your schools. Um, so I, I think for most students this is important because it eliminates that stress of thinking, well, what if I find a mistake and I need to adjust it? Or mm -hmm. what if for one set of schools I'm applying as a business major and I'm talking about business in my essay, but for another set of schools I'm applying as an economics major and you want to tweak your essay accordingly, you know, those are important changes. And so students shouldn't feel that it has to be a completely one-size-fits-all essay, but I don't want to encourage students to write completely different versions of their personal statements for all of the schools they're applying to. That's really not the purpose of the common application. Right. And in fact, I think the rationale behind only allowing students to change it three times was this idea that they wanted to discourage students from thinking, oh, I need a, a specially personalized essay for every single school that I apply to. Because to your point, let's just throw the whole purpose of the Common App right out the window. The idea is you do one application and it's good for a number of different schools. Um, so I, I'd love to talk through that a little bit more. I think you hit on something really important, which is this shouldn't mean that you then need to or are expected to or really even should change mm -hmm. that essay. Um, and I think you that's a really great example. Let's say you have an interest in both business and engineering, and maybe there are half your schools you're going to apply as an engineering major, and at the other half it's going to be a business major. Well, you might want to have different essays. Um, are there any I, I can think of a couple of other examples of times where um, I might have a student use a different essay for their main common app essay, like, for example, they may be applying to a school where the supplement, the supplemental question, mm. what they've written for their main essay is a perfect fit for that particular question. And so we might want to use it for that question and then have a different essay as their main common app essay. Are there other examples in your mind that, that, that come to mind for you? Well, I think just thinking of it from the reverse scenario, actually, when if on the college side, if they're receiving for example, an essay where it has been tailored for that particular school, not in terms of a particular major, but let's say you're actually referencing the name of the school, you're referencing particular courses or the building names. Colleges know it's sometimes it's very easy to cut and paste you know, mm -hmm. one school A for school B's name, and they're not necessarily going to be impressed by you simply adding the school's name in the essay. So it, it, it's a lot of extra work on a student's part, and Mistakes can often be made when you are making those little types of changes, not the sweeping changes that you were mentioning, Beth, but when you're just trying to be sneaky and say, guess what, I, I know this little thing about your school and I'm inputting it here. If you happen to forget to take that out for the next school you're applying to, it doesn't look so good when you're you know, referencing 
Brown's Dining Hall when you're applying to Columbia or something like that. Exactly. If the schools want to hear about your particular interest in their school, they ask that question. And we did actually a segment a couple of weeks ago on that, the Why This College essay. But that's different from this personal statement. And and I would really encourage students to heed Elise's warning, which is the worst thing you're going to do is send an, an essay that you've tweaked to add the name of one school and send it to a different school. That is not not that school. We don't, they don't like that. I didn't like it when I was an admissions officer. And I know that that continues to be a pet peeve. Um, so believe it or not, we are getting close to the break. So uh, we have lots of other things that we wanted to talk about. And I'm going to hold that until the break. So uh, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. And we're going to continue this conversation about the Common App when we return. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, myth, reality, and 21st century archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. 
Before the break, my guest Elise Krantz and I were talking about some of the changes to this year's version of the Common App that have already been announced. Uh, so we're just going to keep on keeping on because there were a lot of them. Um, and actually, before the break, we were talking about the essay and the ability this year to edit that primary essay as many times as you feel is necessary. Uh, and we were quick to point out that you shouldn't be creating a brand new essay for every single school that you apply to, nor should you feel like if it's the complete correct version to that you send to the very first college you submit your application to, there is no need to continue to tweak that. Uh, it's really that you have the option to if you need to, but certainly not that you should feel like you must. Uh, along the lines of writing requirements, um, there are some new things uh, regarding the supplements this year, at least. So can you talk us through that new change? Sure. This was actually one of the changes that was suggested by guidance counselors and teachers and parents and students as one of their problems that they had with last year's common application. Because when a school has specific questions that they want to ask their applicants, whether it's about, you know, why do you want to apply to our school or why did you choose the major you chose or something really quirky like what tree would you be if you were a tree, they Uh ask those questions in, uh, it, it could have been hidden in many places within the common application and it was hard for students to identify and locate those school-specific questions. So sometimes they thought, oh, this is great. I don't have any extra questions for the school. It's just the main personal statement. And then all of a sudden they see this little hidden question in a random tab somewhere. Oh, now I have to write a brand new essay. So the good news is this year there will be a tab called Writing Requirements. It will be on the dashboard, and you will see it um, when you're looking at your My Colleges list. You'll see for every school that you have added to your college's list, under writing requirements, you'll see whether it is an optional question, for example, if for students who are applying just to a particular scholarship, or if it's a required question um, for those, for example, applying to the School of Arts and Sciences, you have to answer that question. Um, so that'll be a really handy way for students to know how many extra essays are are they writing, and also nicely, how many essays can they reuse at different schools because they're asking similar questions. Yes. My, my, uh, My biggest pet peeve last year was, unfortunately, my alma mater, Cornell, who did not pop up the school specific question until the student checked the box indicating which school they were going to apply to. So I would have students saying, well, Cornell doesn't have anything extra. And I would say, no, I'm sure they do. And it was really not I didn't like that at all. So let's hope that this solves that problem. I'm very excited. It really, it really should. It, it should. And I remember it was hidden in random places for some schools. Sometimes yes. it was in the additional information tab. Sometimes it was in the academics tab. Sometimes it was in a, I mean, it's just, it could have been anywhere. So this should be much more streamlined. Yes. And not only is that devastating for the student to discover that they have extra writing to do, uh, for those of us who work with students who are writing these essays and applying to college, it can be just a little devastating for us, too, when we think that everything's done and only to find out that now maybe there's some extra writing and now there isn't that much time to, to get it done and make sure that the student has polished it to the best of their ability. So this is a really great thing and may actually, in fact, be my favorite thing about um, this new version of the Common App. Uh, and I did and then, want to point out, actually, yep. Beth, uh, before we move to the next point, I just thought that for students who do log on on April, excuse me, on August 1st, mm-hmm. and they're starting to add their colleges to the list, and they look at that writing supplements tab, 
oftentimes schools do not have their acts together at, uh, on August 1st. Just because mm-hmm. the Common App is up and running does not mean that all of the school supplements are available for viewing. Sometimes schools are still tweaking it or they're having technological issues. So you need to constantly refresh and look at those pages every few days. So if you happen to see a not available yet, just keep in mind that it will be coming. It may take a few weeks, but the, the schools that do have extra essays, they will eventually appear on that tab. Yes, and not available does not mean not required. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, I would say, and correct me if you think that I'm wrong, but most of those supplemental essays will become available usually by mid to late August. It's rare that it gr- drags on into September, although it does happen. Have you seen mm-hmm. anything come in much later than that? No, I, I'd say that's, that's accurate. Certainly by, by mid-August, certainly no later than the very end of August, the majority of schools have posted. And it's not always the college's fault. Sometimes it's just a, a tech issue updating their information with the Common App. But they should be there within a few weeks. Right. The other, the other piece of advice that we could offer is checking the school's website. So I was on Penn's website the other day, and they've already posted their supplemental questions on the website. You can't get it from the Common App because, of course, the Common App's not live yet. But they did make it available for students who are perhaps going to be working on their applications this summer. So that's another option. Uh, okay, what else? What other things? So we talked about college-specific supplements. Um, one new change that we talked about a little bit with Scott last week was the fact that some colleges uh, may not be requiring the essay. What, what do you know about that piece of things? So the Common Application is trying to increase their access to a range of colleges and universities, especially for students who may not be looking at schools that are very selective, that may not need essays as part of the admissions process. The Common App used to be part all about the holistic review, but I think now they're understanding that not all colleges do the fully holistic review, and they may be a little more numbers-driven, and that's okay. And Mm -hmm. so that you will find schools now that are members of the Common Application that don't need an essay to evaluate your application. They, they simply will look at your transcript and your testing and you know, perhaps your resume and, and those other pieces that are required. Um, but the nice thing is that if you have already written and drafted an, a nice essay that some of your other colleges do require, you are still allowed to submit it to those schools that do not require that essay. And that will be made available to students as an option if they want to do that. Right. So the beautiful thing about that is you take a school that used to have their own individual application, you add, they're now on the Common App, which means you, it's very easy to submit your application to them. You don't have to create a brand new application to fill in a bunch of the same information all over again. And then you've got an essay that's written, so they may not read it, but you don't have to worry about writing a brand new essay potentially, or, you know, because a lot of those schools maybe had an optional essay, but the questions didn't align with the Common App, so you wound up writing a totally different essay that may never have gotten read. I I would agree with you. I kind of like this change. I don't think it's um, a terrible one. And and I think the more applications or schools that accept the Common App, given how many students have filled it out, uh, the better. That's my take. I know other people may disagree. I I agree. Mm -hmm. I think think it's a nice move. And for the students who do choose to submit their essays, as you mentioned, if they're not read, they're not read. But if you are submitting an essay that's well-written and somebody does happen to read it on the college side, it may help you stand out. If, if 
if your testing or your or your or your transcript isn't quite what the school is looking for, but they read this really well done essay, that can help differentiate you, especially if the majority of other students aren't submitting it. So that right. is something to think about as well. Absolutely, great great potential for the bubble applicant. Uh, one new thing in the past couple of years, not earlier than that, but there was this new thing which made it very difficult to see what you were actually submitting to the colleges before you press submit. So there's a change to that that we're also all applauding. Can you tell us a little bit more about the whole print preview piece? Oh, sure. So as you're filling out this common application, it's it's a natural reaction to want to see how it looks after you've done it. For example, you're on the activities page and you've filled in your 10 activities and you've written all of your descriptions and you want to see, okay, how does it look? And then you try to print preview it only to realize you can't. There's no way to preview it unless every single page of your, of your application was complete. This yeah. is the way it was last year. And it was, it was challenging. But this year, again, this was feedback through guidance counselors and teachers, etc., Students will now see a little preview button. I believe it's on the upper right-hand corner of every screen. So it will be a PDF document that students will be able to print out, and then they can visually inspect how that application looks. Are there any typos? Um, Do they see anything that's been truncated or cut off because of technological issues? It's going to be great to be able to see that without having every little line and dot filled in. Right, and so you're not doing it at the 11th hour. You're actually doing it as you go, and you can feel more confident about because uh, is there anything worse than thinking you're done and then realizing there are all these mistakes you have to go back and fix? So that's great, great news. Um, what about if you're having an issue? You're on the Common App. You're filling something out. You can't seem to get it to work right, or you have an issue. Where do you turn for help, or is that only available during business hours? What's the deal with the Common App support? So after I write my blog every year, we get a lot of questions through the blog about how to use the Common App. And more often than not, I can answer the questions because I have dug around so much. But sometimes I'm stumped and I don't know what to do. But instead of writing, I'm not sure, what I will usually do is go through the Common App Help Desk. It's wonderful. And this year they're making it even more wonderful. Um, access will be available to students and parents and counselors basically 24-7, 365, every day, every year, every hour. And and most students are working on this, you know, at 11 o'clock at night, 1 in the morning, you send out an email. Within a few hours, you will get a response. I've used the help desk on numerous occasions, and I've always found the advice and the help to be wonderful. And if it's not, usually just one more email back and forth helps get the, the question clarified, but it's, it's going to be great to have that extra advice right there. Absolutely. So the message there is, you don't necessarily want to email the help desk every single second or every little thing that you have go wrong, but you also shouldn't l- use it as your absolute last resort. They're there to help, and they're really wonderful at helping. And it probably wouldn't surprise people to learn that if you have a question about it, it's probably something other people have a question about. Uh, so it's uh, you know we answer very similar questions on a regular basis here, and we get used to answering those questions, but um, we can generally provide some really good background. And, and the Common App Help Desk can as well, which is which is wonderful. Every year, there are new colleges that get added to the Common App. Are there some in particular that um, you know? What what do we know about how many new colleges added the Common App this year, and, and do we know anything about them? 
So this year it was, I think, about 60 or 70 members, I think close to 70 members joined the Common Application. And I think a lot of it, and many of them are public universities, and not always your big-name publics, but more regional public universities. And I think a lot of it comes back to the Common App's change of allowing schools to not need an essay as part of their application process, um, which I think is great. There's a lot more options now for students to choose from. Um, you can access the list. Eventually, you'll be able to access it from the Common App website. There's a link at the top where it mentions members, and you can see all members and new members. It's not updated just yet, but there is a place on the Common App's blog where they have the list of the new members for the 2015-2016 year. Um, and a couple of them stood out to me. I was pretty excited. Um, probably one of the first First ones was to see Tulane University, which yes. was very briefly on the Common App a couple years ago, and then they were on their own Common App, uh, their own app. And I think they also used the Universal application. They did. Yep. Yep. But it's nice that they'll be in the mix now because so many students are looking at Tulane. It's a great, great school. Um, and there are a few others as well that a lot of our students look at. St. John's University in New York City. Um, there's West Virginia University, which is a great. Um, really spirited public school. Um, and, you know, there's just lots of great options that students may want to consider that are that will now be members, which is great. It is great. I'm very excited about Tulane. I do have typically a lot of students who apply to Tulane. And one of the biggest frustrations with their application was that often their main essay uh, wasn't allowed to be quite as long as the Common App essay was. So it could be basically the same essay, but we always had to shorten it up, and that was kind of frustrating. So I am yeah. doing a little um, dance in my chair over the fact that Tulane has now added the Common App. It's very exciting. Uh, Elise, is there anything else that you wanted to add about these more general changes that we already know about? I think that's pretty much it. I, I know next week we'll be talking much more in depth about really the nitty-gritty of the application. We'll see what it's like. I don't think there's going to be, technologically, I don't think there's going to be a lot of changes from last year, um, but I, I think the improvements that have been made are really wonderful. It was a few years ago when the Common App had a big revamp, and there were lots of issues, lots of glitches, lots, lots of moaning and general angst about the process, but they really, I think the Common App's been doing a great job trying to make this easier for students, which really is the goal. Yes, absolutely. That, that is the core of what um, they're doing and what we're doing also. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, as I mentioned before, Elise is going to be back uh, next week. Uh, she just mentioned too. I also want to throw a plug out there. Uh, she re recently wrote a great blog about the new SAT and kind of she did some research and what we're seeing with uh, trends in terms of whether colleges are going to mix and match scores from the new SAT and the old SAT and uh, who's going to be requiring what. So um, I would strongly recommend people, uh, you can even just Google Elise Krantz, new SAT, and her blog should pop up. So check that one out. Um, also, before we go to the break, I do want to remind everyone about our listener promotion. This is the final week for listeners to submit their questions or topic ideas at www.getintocollege.com forward slash radio. So again, it's getintocollege.com, all one word, forward slash radio. 
Uh, We're going to choose the most timely and relevant topics to create a listener's choice show that will air in a couple of weeks. Um, All submissions will be entered into a raffle, and we're going to select three winners, one each week until the first week of August, to win a free 30-minute consult with one of our college coach experts. Uh, Our winner last week already claimed his prize, and I think he found it very useful and helpful. I'm going to announce last week's winner at the end of the show, and this week's winner is going to be drawn on Tuesday, August 4th at noon. Eastern time. So if you have a question or a great idea for a segment, please send it along now so that you can be entered to win. Uh, And we're going to be back after the break talking about uh, income-driven repayment plans, loan repayment plans. So don't go away. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Up Close with Chris Tinney is now on Voice America Variety. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, Chris brings you the thought leaders, activists, and socially responsible entrepreneurs taking action for the environment, doing business in a new way, and helping the underprivileged. Call in or listen in every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, and learn how the small decisions you make today have a big impact on our small planet in the future. Tune in to Up Close with Chris Tinney on the Voice America Variety Channel. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. Last week, we talked with Jean Mahan about preparing to enter loan repayment. She had some great tips about just getting ready to do that. And if you're interested, head over to the archives and check out that week. Uh, You can go right to the segment on that, or you can listen to the whole show. Uh, Just depends on what you need help with. Uh, But this week, college coach, educator, and former Boston University and Tufts financial aid officer, Shannon Vasconcellos, is here to give us a more in-depth look at 
income-driven loan repayment plans. Um, We talked a little bit about those last week, but this week we're going to really dig into it. Hi, Shannon. How are you? Hi, Beth. I'm great. How are you? I'm good, thanks. And I'm very excited to have you here and um, helping us get into this a little bit more because, as I mentioned, we really... Um, touched on it, but we didn't necessarily mm. dig too deeply into it. Um, right. So why don't we start with some of the basics in terms of what different pay- repayment plans are available for student loans? Yeah, and there's a few of them. So the one is called the standard plan, and that's kind of the default option that you're automatically placed on. If you don't request otherwise, you pay the same amount every month for 10 years. So at the end of your 10 years, the loans are paid off. Um, so that's what kind of happens automatically if you don't request otherwise. If that 10-year standard repayment plan creates a monthly payment that's too high for you, if you can't afford to make that payment, there are a few options. Um, One is called the extended repayment plan. Um, That's available if you have high loan balances, and it allows you to extend payment out instead of 10 years over up to 25 years. Um, So that can really help in terms of lowering your monthly payments. Um, There's another plan called the graduated repayment plan where... That's kind of based on the theory that for most people, when you're first starting out in your career and you're first starting to repay your loan, you're not making that much money. And then over the years, your salary gradually rises and your loan payments gradually rise over the course of 10 years. Um, So those um, were kind of the three main repayment plans. Um, And then a number of years ago, there was a lot of concern about student loan debt really skyrocketing, loan defaults increasing. Uh, and a lot of concern that folks that were maybe going through some hard times or maybe folks in careers where that require you know a lot of education but that don't reward you with a tremendously high salary, mm-hmm. um, like maybe you know teachers, social workers, folks like that wouldn't be able to keep up with the their really ballooning student loan payments on on those kind of traditional plans. So they decided to offer, um, some options where payments weren't just a fixed amount, but they were based on a percentage of your income. Um, so those are the income-driven plans, and to make things extra confusing, they're actually a handful of different <laughs> income-driven plans. Um, the ones that are going to be most relevant for most people, there's one called income-based repayment. Um, okay. IBR is how it's often abbreviated. Um, And for most borrowers, that's going to set your monthly payment at 15% of your discretionary income. Uh, The way they define discretionary income is your income above 150% of the federal poverty line. Um, So it basically, it makes sure your loan payments don't eat up your whole paycheck. It caps your payments at 15% of your income. Um, the, The other thing about IBR is if your income stays low, and you've been making your required IBR payments for 25 years, and you still have a loan balance outstanding, the remaining balance is forgiven. Mm. So with IBR, you're paying 15% of your income for up to 25 years. Anything left after that is forgiven. Gotcha. Um, uh, okay. Yeah. So that, that's a good repayment plan for a lot of people. Now, a few years ago, the government created an even better repayment plan uh, called Pay As You Earn. Uh, And that plan caps your student loan payments at 10% of your discretionary income and forgives balances after 20 years instead of 25. So that plan is even better than IBR. Uh, The catch is that the plan was only made available to a limited number of what the government refers to as new borrowers. So you had to have had recent loans to qualify for pay-as-you-earn. 
Okay. Um, if you've already been repaying your loans for a number of years, but you're going through tough times, they don't let you get on that one. Uh, IBR is the best for you if you've had loans outstanding for a while. Okay. Now, if you are in that situation, just to make things more complicated, <laughs> there's good news that the, the president actually just issued an executive order last year requiring the Department of Education to make that pay-as-you-earn repayment plan uh, expanded to all borrowers, not just new ones. Um, so the Department of Education is currently working on creating a new plan that they're calling now revised pay-as-you-earn or repay, the nice little catchy title that they've given us, <laughs> that repay plan that's in the works is going to, again, cap payments at 10% of your income, but this time everyone's going to be eligible, not just new borrowers. Um, so that plan isn't in effect yet, but um, they're going to be working over it over the next number of months, and it's expected to go into effect by the end of this year. So that's something to stay tuned for. So I would say for folks now in repayment, if you've got older loans, your best option is IBR. If you've got newer loans, it's pay-as-you-earn. But soon it will be this new revised pay-as-you-earn for everybody. Gotcha. To get any more complicated, Beth, that was a very long answer to a short <laughs> question. That was pretty complicated, although it does sound like when this new one comes out, the repay piece. Right. Will it get rid of um, the other two, and now you will just have that option, which means it will actually be less complicated, or who knows what's going to happen? You would think so, but it looks like that's not actually going to be the case. <laughs> They're going of to keep the, the other two plans in effect, and this new one will be added to the list. That's, that's the way it currently looks like. Awesome. All right. But, but well. for, for most people, there's no reason. Once the new plan's in effect, is. For most people, there's no reason you would choose the other ones. Most people will be going into this repay once that's in effect. Gotcha. Okay. One question I have is, if can everybody at any income level take advantage of one of these income-driven repayment plans, or are there thresholds? Yeah. And there aren't exactly thresholds, but not everybody's going to be able to take advantage. Um, they are considered hardship programs. So you have to qualify based on your income and your debt level. Um, I'll tell you, a great calculator to use is on a website um, that the government runs called studentaid.gov. Um, you can plug your info into that calculator. It will tell you if you qualify. But the kind of general rule of thumb is your federal loan debt, federal student loan debt, and it's, remember, it's just federal loans. We're not talking about private loans at all. Private loans aren't eligible for these plans. Um, but your federal loan debt has to be close to your income level in order for you to qualify. So, you know, if your income is, let's say, around $30,000 a year, your loan balance has to be close to 30000 for you to qualify. Uh, if you've got more like 100000 in student loans, then your income can be much higher. It can be more in the realm of $100,000 a year, mm -hmm. and you could still qualify. So that's, that's kind it. of a very rough, rough estimate. Uh, but definitely for folks wondering about it, play with that calculator on studentaid.gov. So it doesn't necessarily cut you off at a certain income level, but the higher your income, the higher your debt needs to be for you to In qualify. In order to qualify. That, yeah. that seems to make sense and, and actually seems fairly logical. So, But that right, also yeah. sounds so like a if you If you had a very high income, it, it wouldn't, you wouldn't want to be paying you know, 10% for of your salary. That would be more than you'd be paying on another plan, so you probably wouldn't want that. Exactly. And hopefully you wouldn't be paying for 25 years if you're making a exactly. lot of money. Yep. Okay. What about what incomes? Um, so we kind of just covered how that works in terms of um, 
how much you make and how that relates to whether you'd be eligible for one of these plans. But what income are they looking at? You mentioned discretionary income, um, but how does that exactly work when they're figuring out your payment under one of these plans? Yeah, so they start out by looking at the student's adjusted gross income right off of their tax return, and that's what they're comparing to that federal poverty line. Um, And so it's coming off of your tax return. So there's an interesting situation, actually, for married folks. Um, If you file a joint tax return, they're going to look at both spouses' incomes along with both spouses' debts. Um, So that can sometimes throw people out of eligibility for one of these plans. Um, If you're married filing separately, they actually only look at the one borrower's income. They totally ignore the spouse. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of a nice loophole. You know, if you're the borrower and you want to get your student loan payments as low as possible, but you're concerned that your spouse makes too much money, it might actually be in your best interest to file separately. Um, that way your spouse's income doesn't get counted. Um, if you're going to do that, though, you, you have to, it's tricky because you're probably going to pay more in taxes if you file separately. So that's okay. kind of the trade-off. Uh, you get lower student loan payments, but you pay more in taxes. Right, so you um, probably need to do the calculation and see which one is actually the better deal for you. Exactly. And, and actually, that, that particular kind of quirk, that applies to the IBR and the pay-as-you-earn plan. That new repay program that they're talking about, um, again, they're still working on it, but they're talking about looking for that one at both spouses' incomes, um, regardless of how they file their taxes. Um, so they're kind of trying to kind of close that loophole in the new plan. So that's actually the one reason I can think of why people, once the new plan's in effect, the only reason you might want to get on one of those older plans is if you're in the situation where your spouse makes a lot of money and you don't want his or her income counting. Gotcha. Uh, but basically, they look at the adjusted gross income, however many people that includes on your tax return, Compare that to the federal poverty line. The difference is your discretionary income, uh, and that's what they're taking 10 or 15% of for your student loan payments. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, We've been talking in this conversation, we've been referring to student loans. Uh, We have a couple more minutes, so let's maybe we could talk a little bit about, is it only student loans that are eligible? What about parents maybe who've borrowed to pay for their kid's college? Yeah, that's a great question, and unfortunately, it is just student loans that qualify for these income-driven repayment plans. Um, They don't apply to the the big federal parent education loans called the PLUS loan, Um, and you're not allowed to repay PLUS loans on one of these income-driven plans. Um, Though, Having said that, there is actually one potential solution um, for parents who might be interested in an income-driven plan. Um, there is another magical loophole in the regulations, um, which is the, the plus side, perhaps, of overly complicated student loan regulations. They, when, yep. when it's so complicated, it tends to create loopholes. Um, but there's actually another income-driven plan that I haven't mentioned called Income Contingent Repayment, or ICR. They, they all have very similar names to make it extra confusing. Mm-hmm. But the ICR plan caps payments at 20% of borrower's income. Um, so it's not as good as IBR or pay-as-you-earn, which is why I haven't mentioned it. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're usually better, those are plans are the better option for most people. But well, the one thing that makes ICR different is that while you still can't repay parent plus loans on that plan, you can repay 
consolidation loans that have consolidated parent plus loans. Very tricky. So if a parent really wants to get on an income-driven plan, um, you can do it, but it's kind of a two-step process. You first have to consolidate all of your plus loans into a federal consolidation loan and then request the ICR repayment plan on that consolidation loan. So it's a little bit complicated, but that's kind of the only way to do it. Um, otherwise, you know, if you're a parent and, you know, you're having trouble making payments on the standard plan, um, remember that there's still the extended plan. There's still a graduated plan that would be an option for you. Um, so there are other ways to get repayment relief. It doesn't necessarily have to be through one of these income-driven plans. Okay, great. We have literally one minute. So any final <laughs> recommendations for someone considering an income-driven repayment plan? Yeah, I would say definitely play with that calculator on studentaid.gov. That will tell you kind of exactly what payment plans you're eligible for, what it will get your monthly payment down to, and what it will cost you long-term in interest. That is the big downside to any of these income-driven plans. Um, You pay less on a monthly monthly basis, um, so that means you stretch out payments over a longer period of time, you pay more interest. So if you play with that calculator on studentaid.gov, that will really give you a very clear uh, kind of picture of the pros and cons to doing one of these income-based repayment plans. And then if you do decide that that that's what you want to do, contact your loan servicer, uh, and they can put you on one of these repayment plans. So definitely uh, take a look at the calculator, talk to your loan servicer, and they can get you up and running. Awesome. Shannon, thank you so much. And also thanks to Elise. Both Shannon and Elise are going to be back with us next week. Um, By that point, Elise plans to have spent significant time digging into the latest version of the Common App. She's going to be sharing her tips. Shannon's going to be here to tell us what not to do when paying for college. So that should be pretty interesting. I also am really excited to announce that Patricia Arma, um, that's Patricia Arma, is the second winner of a 30-minute consult in our listener contest. Patricia, please email us at www.getintocollege.com forward slash radio, and we'll get you set up with your free consult. Uh, For those of you who are saying, hey, I want a free consult, uh, well, enter our contest, send us your segment ideas, and we will enter you to win uh, the last and final 30-minute consult with one of our college coach experts. Same website, getintocollege.com forward slash radio. Uh, We're going to draw the final winner on Tuesday, August 4th at 12 p.m. Eastern time. And just a reminder that you don't have to listen to our shows live. We love it if you do, but you don't have to listen live. Every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website. You can also download every show for free on iTunes. So get in there. Check out our archives. There's all kinds of good stuff that's going to be useful to you if you are in the class of 2016 or younger or in the case of our segment just now, older than that. Um, We're going to be here next week on Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. Um, But as I just said, we're really on demand. So if you can't make that specific time, you could still hear the show. Thanks again. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.